So if we'll all turn to page 10 so we can read through the word together. And it goes as follows. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. I always want to say Oprah. <laughs> they lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, let's just pray over these verses real quick. So, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together in the Word. Um, Lord, Just we pray that your Spirit would descend upon us as we dig a little bit deeper, ask all of the questions, really just gain the knowledge that you want us to. I pray at this time that you would use me as a vessel to um, give these women the message that you want them to hear this evening. Pray for open hearts, open ears, and open minds. Amen. All righty, ladies. So... Y'all are going to think that I'm a little bit crazy because I spent a lot of time on verses 1 through 5. So as we all know, the story of Ruth is a historical narrative. Typically, when you are um, digging a little bit deeper in a story, you want to find out some key points. You want to find out the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. So that's the typical order of things, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch it up and I'm going to follow how the information is given, verses 1 through 5. And it starts with the when. The when is, it uses the phrase, in the days when the judges rules. This indicates a pre-monarch period clearly identifiable as a phase in Israel's history. This phase is between the death of Joshua and the crowning of Saul as the first nation's king in Israel. The who are the main characters that we first hear about in the first five verses of the story. We hear about Elimelech, we hear about his wife Naomi, and we hear about his two sons, Machlon and Kilion. Elimelech, the definition of his name is, my God is king. And I spent a lot of time over this, and we'll figure out why in a second. The second is Naomi, and her name means to be pleasant. I imagine her being very meek and mild and so sweet. And then they had two sons, Machlon. His name has the original origins to mean sick or to be sick. And Kilion, his original origins of his name mean to either be frail or mortality. Now, these names are incredibly ominous, and just as we're getting into the story of Ruth, there are already words that indicate that something bad might happen. They were Ephrathites, and I was like, what does this mean? Were they still Israelites? And they were. It's just indicative of the place where they are from, so the region around Bethlehem. So what happens to get the story going? Well, Elimelech, being the head of his family, 
prompts them to leave Bethlehem during the famine. The phrase that is used by the author is to sojourn. And in our books this week, we looked a little bit deeper into what that means. And the verb used suggests that Elimelech intended for his family to only be there for a short while. That he intended to wait out the famine in the land of Moab and then return back to Bethlehem. But why? Just because of the famine? Well, yes, because of the famine, that was his main indicator why he left from what we hear. But the cause of the famine isn't exactly made clear to us. However, if we look a little bit deeper into the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus 26, 18 and 20, as well as Deuteronomy 28, 23 to 24, that according to the covenant curses, we can conclude that this was a judgmental act of God. If the people of Israel persisted on rebelling against God, he would respond not only by allowing Israel's enemies to kill their crops and occupy their land, we learn this in the book of Judges, but he'd also respond by cutting off the rains and sending a famine. So we already know that God's got his hand in what's going on in Bethlehem. So where does this story take place? From verses 1 through 5, we go from Bethlehem to Moab. The irony, as I said before, is that Bethlehem, the land of bread, has no bread. So the, la- the trip to Moab would not have been an easy one. The family would have had to travel roughly 137 miles to go from Bethlehem to Moab. Now, we're not sure which trajectory they took. I know that we looked at the back of our books to the map, and I kind of did a little bit of research. How would they have got there? Well, they could have gone north um, through Jerusalem and Benjamin, across uh, down Reuben and into the plains of Moab, or they could have gone south through Hebron into Moab, or if they had a boat or access to one, they could have actually gone across the Dead Sea. Why is this move so shocking? Like, why does this move even matter? Well, aside from the distance that the family had to travel, they left the promised land of God and went into forbidden territory. They went into the Moabite territory. And who are the Moabites? Well, Israel has an incredibly long history with the Moabites. It starts with the origin of the Moabites, from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. This can be found in Genesis 19, 30 through 38. If you're looking for a scandalous read, you'll go back and read that one a little bit. I was rather shocked about that. Um, Second of all, the Moabites had a reluctance to the Israelites' passage through the territory as they were coming out of Egypt. This can be found in Numbers 22 through 24. Thirdly, the Moabite women talk about scandalous. They would seduce the men of Israel, and the Israelites would be punished by God because of it. This can be found in Numbers 25, 1 through 9. As well as the fact that there's the basic constitutional exclusion of the Moabs from the assembly of the Lord, stated in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, where it says, do not marry foreigners. And then fifth, as if we need another reason, the oppression of the, of the Israelites by Echlon, king of Moab, found in Judges 3, 15 through 30. So Elimelech and his family left the promised land of God with the intention of returning once the famine, of, famine was easy, I mean famine was over, 
to Moab where they figured life would be easy. So this asks the question, was this an act of faith by Elimelech or was it an act of unbelief? Because according to the book of Deuteronomy, if the people of Israel would repent, God would withdraw his anger and lift the famine. However, Elimelech decided to take matters into his own hands and designed his own solution instead of calling upon God and asking for mercy and repenting for his sins and those of his family. Furthermore, as the story reads, we know that Elimelech and his family were not the only ones experiencing the famine. The story isn't that the famine was just on their property, just in their community. No, it was all throughout Bethlehem where they were experiencing that famine. So did everybody leave and go to Moab? No, because Moab would have been overrun. So not only that, but they return and they find people that are still there, that survived through it. So here's a question for you. In what ways are you taking matters into your own hands during a time of discomfort instead of relying on God? Because seriously, I know I've done it. I'm sure we've all done it. And I don't know about y'all, but in those times where I know that I just feel like God is so far away, but, and I feel like I know better than God, I'm going from the frying pan into the fire. It never ends well for me. And in the case of Elimelech and his family, Bethlehem was the frying pan and Moab was the fire. So, conclusion for that little bit is that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And sometimes it is, but that's only because there's more poop there, right? (laughs) So, the family went to the country of Moab and remained there. Remained there so much for a short stay, am I right? How many of us have been like just a little while, 10 years later, right? Elimelech escaped famine, but he did not escape death. Tragedy strikes in Moab. So tragedy after tragedy takes place. The first is that Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi as a widow and a single mother in a foreign land. Furthermore, Elimelech is buried in an unclean foreign land, which is to be considered the ultimate punishment. This you can reference in Amos 7, 27. Second of all, Mechlon and Kilion take on foreign wives, which I can imagine is incredibly heartbreaking for Naomi. Naomi, as the head of the household, she should have foresaw this. But remember what we said? Pleasant Naomi, so meek and so mild, right? But we must also think about the implications of those that bring young people into bad acquaintance and into situations of lawlessness, because that's exactly what happened here. They took on their environment. They acclimated. They forgot about the ways of their people, and they married foreign wives. Even if the intention is good, like this one was, so that they didn't starve, the implications and the outcome were still bad. So Naomi's sons lived in their married states for 10 years, but without fathering children. The barrenness of Ruth and Orpah must be interpreted as a further act of the hidden hand of God. The barrenness, um, whether her husband was infertile due to an assumed illness or not, we can assume 
that God's wrath had a hand in Ruth not conceiving children because it would have only taken the ultimate act of God for her to later then be able to, con- to conceive with Boaz. And then the fourth and most climatic bo- blow is when both Mahlon and Kilion die, leaving Ruth with no husband and no sons. So from verses three to five, like I said before, a series of unfortunate events, tragedy after tragedy, heartbreak after heartbreak, and an attempt to outrun famine concludes in a run-in with death. The inability of one man to be still in a season that tested his faith resulted in years and years of hardship for his family. So what does that tell us? It tells us that our choices matter. Most importantly, it tells us that our choices matter to God. I think about how Elimelech and his family were not the only ones suffering from that famine. And I wonder to myself, why didn't he ask a neighbor for help? Why didn't he ask a family member for help? Was his pride that much bigger than our faith or than his faith? And how often is our pride bigger than our faith? We can fix it ourselves. We can rely on ourselves. So although the provision was not as plentiful as it had been before, those that had remained in Bethlehem managed. There wasn't a mass evacuation of Bethlehem. That didn't happen. People stayed behind. People had seen the faithfulness of God over and over and over again, and they chose to believe that. But Elimelech packed up his whole family and jumped from the frying pan into the fire, trying to outrun that. So what does this mean for the state of Elimelech's heart? Are we like Elimelech in that we go through a season of self-perceived famine and we too bail on the promises of God? Because he literally left the promised land. So as I was preparing for this class and I was processing it, um, I went ahead and I used one of our resources, um, Adam Hunsaker, who's the teaching and discipleship coordinator, And he sent me a really interesting quote of commentary about Elimelech's choices that I'd like to share with you. And it reads as follows. It is an evidence of a discontented, distrustful, unstable spirit to be wary of the place in which God has set us and to be leaving it whenever we are met with an uneasiness or inconvenience in it. It is folly to think of escaping that cross which being laid in our way, we ought to take up. It is our wisdom to make the best of that which is, for it is seldom that changing our place is mending it. For it is seldom that changing our place is mending it. As humans, we are geared towards comfort. So it's so easy to sidestep a cross that we've been called to carry. And I got thinking about this a little bit deeper. We all face difficult times, whatever that might look like for you, whatever it is that the church deems sin, whether that's divorce or abortions or gossip, (laughs) right? And we have a choice in those moments. Do we walk through it with God or do we bail? Do we take the easy way out? Because I'm not going to lie, I've been there. I'm like, oh God, not today right? But he's called me 
to go through that for a specific reason. There's growth that happens in that discomfort. So we've been called to persevere, to run the long race, to show endurance. Over and over and over again, we go through these seasons. I was sharing it with my small group. I've been through seasons. I'm currently going through a season where all I can pray is, God, help me. God, Jesus, take the wheel. Every day, I'm just like, I, I, I can't do it otherwise. I haven't always been that way, though. So what about yourselves? What are you going through where it would be just so much, so easy to bail, like Elimelech does, just to peace out? Say, I'll deal with this later, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year. Maybe if I ignore it, it'll go away. Yet God is saying, hold on, this is orchestrated for you for a reason. I want you to walk through this because there's a miracle that's about to happen through you. There's a breakthrough that's about to happen. And oh man, when you go through that breakthrough and you prove to be so much stronger than you thought you were, you're going to be so much closer to me, A, which is all God wants is for us to be closer to him. But B, it's going to seem like nothing when you got Jesus in your back. I tell my group all the time, God is a homie. He's just waiting for you to put him in the game, so stop benching him, right? Trust him. Let him see you through those difficult times. So I do want to leave you with some encouragement because, honestly, tragedy upon tragedy doesn't sound very encouraging, right? So some references for you to read through when you're at home. You can look at James 1, 2 through 4, Romans 5, 3 through 4. I'll slow down. James 1, 2 through 4, Romans 5, 3 through 4, Romans 8, 28, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, no, 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 this was Lindy reading, trying to find how I could give you encouragement. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and I can send this all out in an email as well. 1 Peter 5, 7. Acts 14, 22. 1 Colossians 11 through 12. I'll send this in an email. Blast you all. <laughs> Spam. Just kidding. Love with, from Lindy. That's me. So, huh? Adam, absolutely. But we won't call it Adam's quote. Come on now. <laughs> so, therefore, my dear sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and I will include it. Just know that you are not in this alone, so do not leave the promised land to go off elsewhere. Instead, we encourage you to build community. Your small groups exist for a reason, even if they're sometimes not so small. But man, do those women love you, and they would love nothing more than to pray for you. Because at the end of the day, we're in it together, right? So I know that I'm a little bit early, but yay, we get done a little early. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pray for us. 
before we head on out. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend in your word. I pray that each of us could pick up our own lesson from you today. I pray that um, as we make our way through next week's homework, that we just draw closer to you and the lessons that you want us to learn. Lord, we love you and we need you. And we just pray that you would walk with us each and every single day and that we feel you near. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.